Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Taraj Parang is a veteran Silicon Valley dealmaker. He is a seasoned entrepreneur, investor, advisor, and M&A expert who has sat in almost every seat around the table structuring, negotiating a strategic transaction since the late 1990s, including as a corporate attorney and legal powerhouses, SGR and over Melvin Myers. Those are two good law firms. Being a lawyer, I know them. Obviously, I've done deals with them. But don't worry, folks, he's moved on from being <laughs> from being an attorney. He's, he's been a founder, executive, and trusted advisor to several fast-growing technology startups with exits to LinkedIn, Instacart, Vistaprint, Postmates, and Amplitude, among others. He has also spent nearly a decade on the acquirer side of M&A deals as a corporate development executive at Webs and GoDaddy, exit patros on uh, Taraj's uh, decades-long unique experience involving hundreds of M&A transactions, strategic partnerships, and venture capital investments totaling billions of dollars in aggregate value. So we're going to be talking about his book and and other services called Exit Path, which I'm excited about. He is currently uh, the president and chief operating officer of Serve Robotics, which he helped spin out of Uber, and an operating advisor at Peer, Peer VC, an early-stage venture capital firm where he enjoys collaborating with and providing strategic guidance to mission-driven entrepreneurs. Taraj, uh, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Hey, excited to be here. Thanks for the kind introduction, Corey. Yeah, I mean, what a background in in, in so many aspects of, of M&A and VC and, you know, and deal work. And I want to get into all of that and, and all the wisdom you can provide our audience. But before we go there, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid uh, growing up, uh, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. Uh, what did you want to be? Because my guess is, you know, an expert in the M&A space and playing all these different roles and maybe even, you know, being an author of a book uh, might not have been it, but you tell me. No, yeah. You know, I think that probably the only common thread from my childhood to now is the fact that I have always loved technology and innovation. I I remember kind of buying these magazines back then, there were physical copies yeah. <laughs> that they were like, you know, science and technology magazines about the latest gadgets. And I would just marvel at them. And I never imagined myself to actually be in the driver's seat of a tech company or be actually building things. But I, I, I was a consumer, an avid, curious kid, really interested in what's the latest technologies. So um, I'm glad that Life had it in store for me to be back and involved with technology the way I am today, and I just couldn't be happier. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, if anybody listened to the names we rattled off there, they were for the most part in the in the tech space. So, <laughs> all right, one more question. Looking back, what was your first deal of any type? Could have been something small when you were a kid, or, or yeah. in your career, whatever comes to mind. I remember actually. This is a, it's a great question. No one had asked me this before, but. I, I remember that my first deal was selling 
a box of knives, Cutco knives, to a friend's mother. And they were so, so kind to kind of buy the whole thing. I was so happy. And that was like my first sales experience. Love it. Love it. Love it. I was in high um, school, ninth grade, 10th grade. There we go. Yeah. All right. So, so let's talk about, you know, the, the journey a little bit. I mean, obviously you started out on the legal side, like I've been for, for many, many years. And as is true for actually a lot of my colleagues, they, they end up moving or at least some of them end up moving over to the business side. So talk about, talk about that journey a little bit and, yeah. and maybe what would be the first thing that's interesting, you know, for me, and I think some of the audiences, you know, perspective of being a lawyer on deals and then a perspective of being, you know, involved on the principal side whether it's on the yeah. buy-sell side. Talk a little bit about that. So, you know, when I went to law school, in my mind, you know, I, I wanted to work with tech companies and represent startups. And in my mind, as a lawyer representing startups, I felt that I would be really in the midst of action. I would be helping them create things, structure deals, things like that. So when I actually started practicing law, though, that was a bit of a rude awakening for me yeah. because the at least... For a junior associate, the practice of law is not that. (laughs) A lot of times I had to fix signature blocks and make sure that the commas are in the right place. And and so pretty quickly, I I got a bit disillusioned with the work I was doing, Sure, especially because I had that ambition. Like if if my mindset was something else, perhaps I would have been quite happy, but I, I felt that I am far from where I wanted to be in the ecosystem of entrepreneurship and innovation. So I sort of, in a panicked evening, I sent a bunch of emails and requests to my Stanford alumni network. I went to Stanford as an undergrad. And luckily, someone kind of heard me and decided to to help out and connected me with, that person connected me with his spouse who happened to be a partner at a venture capital, European venture capital firm that wanted to open an office here in the US, Ah, in Palo Alto. And we we hit it off. I became the first associate they hired for their US office. That was the year 2000. Timing was a bit tricky. (laughs) As soon as I signed on that dotted line and left the lucrative legal profession, the whole market crashed all around me. But hey, being an investor VC was quite quite a good learning opportunity. I kind of got an MBA on the job as an associate in a venture capital firm. Yeah, so let's talk about some of the all right, some of those lessons. And and listen, I I hear you know it's it's interesting on the well. Let me I'll go back for a second to you comment on the legal side. Yeah, I mean, no question as a young associate, you know, at big firms. I mean, yeah, you know, it's proofreading and making copies and commas and due diligence and you know whatever. Yeah, it's definitely not the exciting part of uh, of the deal. I I felt very fortunate that, you know, coming out of school in the '80s, when things were growing like crazy, I had the opportunity to do what the partners told me if I committed to the the deal side. I was like 50 level work in my second year because they were hiring all these young associates. So I got this accelerated right. learning, which was phenomenal because I'm like you, I couldn't. And it's also the reason I went on my own. You know, I I like the strategic side of things. I like the, you know, helping really shape the deal, not just documenting it. And I, for, I think maybe the only reason I stayed in law is that I had this accelerated opportunity and then I got a shingle and, went and became an entrepreneur six years out of school. I could never, you know, there are attorneys who are, you know, eight, 10 years in doing the, their, you know, 400th bond deal. You know, I couldn't do it. So I'm with you. Um, I know. All power to them. It's it's hard work. Oh, yeah. No. Uh, and and uh, yes. a lot of credit. It's just not yeah. me. It's not exactly. you. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So, all right. So you come over to the VC side. You mentioned that there's a lot of lessons you learned. There, let's talk about some of those. Like what, you know, what, what did you, what, you know, what are some of those early lessons? And I know 
but that's going to lead into other experience and eventually oh, yeah. a lot of what goes into your exit path, you know, book and work. But so, yeah, let's talk about those a little yeah, bit. Yeah. You know, one interesting lesson I learned was that, you know, first as a lawyer, I, I thought what really mattered were the words and the contracts and the documents, right? And then I sort of started practicing law and then I realized there's more to it. Then, then I, I kind of felt when I was a VC, I, I went into it thinking that, okay, all that mattered were the numbers, right? So <laughs> I went from words to numbers. So Microsoft Word to Microsoft Excel and spreadsheets and like building an f- elegant financial model. And look, look how beautiful this forecast is and uh, how elegant this model is with these drivers and these assumptions. And we can do X, Y, and Z. And then I realized, you know, to influence people, to actually make deals happen, you need more than words and numbers. You need actual relationships to influence people. You need to kind of get at their hearts and minds and be able to communicate that. You build a story and, and really care about people and build genuine relationships outside of business. The business thing happens. And, and you know, really, one, one thing I say in my book is that, you know, companies don't do deals. People do. Yes. And so it's all about relationships. And, and that's that's something that uh, a lesson I, I, I learned and I was lucky enough to learn and also have role models that exemplify that quite well, that I could see, okay, well, these people are amazingly successful and they're the most humble people I could find and most genuine, most giving people. So that, that I would say the biggest lesson, if I could impart to my kids and other entrepreneurs is that really pay attention to relationships. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. It's, I, I, lo- I love this progression, right? Words, numbers, relationships, like, it's, <laughs> you know, we're getting off the page into, <laughs> into the real world, right? <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Um, yes. All right. So, so, uh, you know, things, things evolved and, and, and now you, you know, you make another move, right. You know, from, from being on the VC side to going in house on, you know, in various tech companies yes. and doing the corporate development side of it. Let's talk about a little bit yeah. about that transition. What, what led you there and, yeah. you know, yeah. What'd you learn? Yeah. I mean, when, when I finally felt like I had enough experience and savings saved to put aside, I actually tried my hand at being an entrepreneur. So my okay. first startup, Jackster started in 2005. And it was a telecommunications company. You could think of it like as WhatsApp or Telegram before yep. we had apps on our iPhones. Right. And it took off. You know, it, it, we, we, we had found the magical combination of things that people needed. You know, they wanted to combine their social networks with their actual phone. And these phones were, again, feature phones without apps on them. And, and we grew. We went to like 1 million users in the first month. We went to 10 million users within the first year. So you can imagine we had all sorts of VCs and investors uh, wanting to join us. And we had great advisors. And we were riding high. So 2005 to 2009, things were great, except the last year, right? right. <laughs> we hit the 2008-2009 downturn. And everything started falling apart. And we were like, our mantra was grow, grow, grow. Now everybody was saying, show me the money. We didn't have any money to really show in terms of customers paying for our services. So we had to kind of really pivot fast and realize that we didn't have enough runway time to do all the experiments needed to tweak our product to be a profitable product. So the alternative was to sell this to business. And we had made a key strategic decision, which was not to bother with courting acquirers or creating strategic partnerships, because who needed that? We're virally growing. We're on top of the world. Why, why, Why bother, right? 
And that came to haunt us because there was no one around that wanted to buy us. And any kind of cold emails that we send or even warm introductions kind of kind of fizzled out. And within six months, we had to do a quick fire sale. And, you know, all these hopes, aspirations, hard work of an amazing team of 70 were sort of went down the drain because of that critical strategic mistake we made. Yeah. Um, with my next startups where I joined a, a kind of an established uh, company that was uh, that had reached its kind of m- local maxima and was looking for a breakout scenario. I joined as a head of strategy and corp dev. And my mission was to figure out how do I take this from a $20 million company to a $100 million plus company. And we were lucky enough that once we did some analysis of our data and of our users, we we hit a critical insight, which was that we were a generic website creation platform, but we realized that if we focused and catered to the needs of our small business clientele, they were the ones that paid the most, they were happiest, they were uh, kind of retained <laughs> the longest. That, that was the magic formula. So we really changed the company to be an online presence tool for small businesses. This repositioning just did wonders for us. And we, we had to do a number of acquisitions to fill in the holes. And we had to create some strategic partnerships to bring in mobile CRM tools, other sort of social media tools at the time. This was in 2009, 2010. So when we br- brought all these under one roof, then we started getting inbound interest from strategic acquirers, public and private companies. And I kind of re- ran that process and we successfully sold to Vistaprint for hundred, close to $120 million. It was more than 12x our forward revenues. And it was, it was a f- phenomenal deal for everybody involved. So, you know, radically different results by sure. just tweaking that one assumption that, hey, you know, we 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 didn't do pursue par- strategic partners and then we really went after them in the next and the other startup. You know, I, I love that contrast. And listen, one of the, one of the it really aligns with the fundamental reason why, uh, you know, I started this podcast, which is really my premise is that, you know, every company spends time on organic growth and they should because they need to get customers and clients, but a such smaller percentage of the companies spend any time on deal-driven growth. And that's just another crucial and your most successful companies do both. And, you know, it's often like, you know, a lot of times when my marketing team promotes it, we talk, we talk about, because you always try to hit pain points, right? So it's like, oh, are you not growing as fast as you'd like? Well, here's another way. But I love the example you gave because- it really does apply to everybody. Whether your growth is 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 not where you want it, where whether you have actually solid growth but want want it faster, or 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 and this is highlights the example of that other extreme where you know your organic growth is 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 phenomenal at whatever, whatever metrics you are, and it's so that's probably the time when it's even easier to to to, to avoid like strategic you know partnerships and other types of of inorganic growth kind of deals. But it makes you so much more vulnerable, right? And that's contrast you said between those two experiences really shows the difference. Yeah, absolutely. And you never know when the market is going to go south. So it's always great to have these strategic, inorganic sort of avenues, options. Options create value, right? You can't go on the market today and get an option for nothing. Yeah, you have to pay for it. Same with startups. When you create strategic optionality for yourself, you actually become a more valuable company just by that sheer act itself. Yeah, go ahead. You know, I was just going to say, uh, so I'd love to get your take on this because some of the things that 
you know, my listeners are probably tired about me hearing, but there's a reason why I repeat certain things because, you know, you got to get it in there. I often talk about the fact that, you know, I think most of us know that there's a different mindset of an entrepreneur versus an employee, right? Right. And I never say that with any kind of judgment. I think people, one's not necessarily better for the other in general, but they're they're better for certain people, right? Like I'm unemployable is my joke, right? So, but I, what I also say, and it's less talked about, is that there's all, you can be an entrepreneur, but not be a deal maker. And there's mm-hmm. another mind shift, mm-hmm. mindset shift that happens, right? Yes. To become a deal maker, to, to start looking at opportunities that, that are on the deal side. So talk talk to me a little bit about your view on that on that mindset conversation, because you know, I think that's where everything starts, right? If you, right. If you don't have the mindset of being a dealmaker, how are you going to even think about or look for the opportunities to do deals? Absolutely. I think that, that is such a critical point to underline, which is like you start with the mindset and and that, and what's underpinning that mindset is that real, the realization as to why do you need to bother, right? So are you just doing it for the intrinsic value of it? Which I, I think there's intrinsic value in creating relationships and, and building, building out your network. We're social animals. So sure. we actually do, do get personal fulfillment from having a good community and, and support network around us. But beyond that, put the intrinsic value aside, there's a utility to having these partnerships, which is Again, in times, it can add new revenue lines to you. It can bring in products. It can fill in the gaps in some of your offering that you couldn't otherwise. It can be a new distribution channel for you. I mean, there are all sorts of strategic partners. It could just be a co-marketing. So there are all these things that, that, that you're sort of leaving on the table and not capturing when you're not in the market doing strategic partnerships. And then there's this, I would say, the, the greatest benefit is that many of these strategic partners can become acquirers and, yes. and you need to have built a history with someone before they become interested in actually buying your company. You can't just send a deck and say, hey, by the way, I'm thinking about selling my company. Are you interested? Things don't happen that way. It usually, in, in my tenure as a seven-year uh, on the acquirer side at GoDaddy, on average, we you know we did like 40 deals when i was there and on average there were more than uh, a year of prior relationship with the targets right. it was very seldom that someone a banker or an entrepreneur comes to us and says hey, i'm interested in buying or selling my startup are you interested it's like how do those those timelines align because we have our own roadmap of what we want to buy we have a whole pipeline also if we don't know someone the acquisitions or the most important deals any company can make. And when so much is riding on it, like even Walmart CEO, I, I heard it on a uh, podcast with Tim Ferriss, I believe, he, he mentioned that you know those are the most hardest decision in his career <laughs> has been uh, acquisitions. Yeah. Because they can totally tank even a big company if they make a wrong move, it's quite disruptive to them. So they need to have a lot of confidence and trust in what who they're going to partner with when they buy your your startup as an entrepreneur so so the, those relationships are the glue that makes those deals happen so i i can't and and that's really the the thesis of my book is all about building these relations how do you go about it how do you start with the mindset and what why does it matter and you know time spent with potential partners is critical you you can't cram a relationship into a lunch meeting yeah totally <laughs> And, and, you know, the other thing about, especially, you know, you, a lot of the deals you worked on were, were big buyers, right? You know, bu- buying up a startup and smaller companies. 
And, you know, the other thing, and I love your input on this, and I do want to delve more specifically into the book in a moment, but, you know, the, the other thing that big companies always have is the decision on whether they're going to build or buy, right? So if they don't know about you, you know, it's, it, I mean, forget the fact that, you know, who knows, maybe they get to know someone else who's doing what you're doing, but they also have this other option called build it. Yeah. And if they don't know you exist or whatever, they may go build it. But if they know you exist and there's some relationship there, or whatever, it's very often a much better move because it accelerates things for them. And, and you know, and you get a good price, but for them, the cost of development could be as yeah. much and, and, and even more so the time, right? You know, speed to market, those kind of things make a difference. So uh, building those relationships also helps you get them the big, the buy, the potential buyer in that, yeah. in that mindset, right? Of potentially buying instead yes. of building. Yes, mindset and mind share. Yeah, right. So they have you have to occupy some somewhere on their be on their horizon. Be you know one of the problems with actually my first startup was that because we didn't cultivate those relationships. Yeah, there were actually our competitors with inferior product, less users, less uh, you know pedigree in terms of venture capitalist backing. Yes, all that got sold at such massive premiums. Around the same time that we went under, yeah. and all and and the people who bought them didn't even bother talking to us. Right, probably didn't know it we existed, or or they they had their own image of what we were based on what they had read in the media, but they never bothered talking to us, and they ended up with an inferior product and paying far more than what they would have paid had they been talking to us. Yes. So, yeah, yes. no, the the mind share is so critical. Yeah, love that. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. All right. So, I mean, listen, there's hours more we can talk about about your past experience, but I want to get to the book and we'll see if we have time to come back. And, you know, I'm sure we'll hear more. a lot of your past experience inform what you have in the book. Yes. So Exit Path, you, you alluded to it, you know, a moment ago about, you know, one of the premises is to have people create these relationships, these strategic alliances, uh, you know, in order to set them up for sale, but to give us more, you know, detail on, on, on the book and, uh, sure. and the premise of what it covers. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it, it really goes through my history that those two radical differences that I, that we just talked about between Jackster and the failed experiment with Jackster and the success story with webs.com, but also a lot of other uh, entrepreneurs that I have coached and mentored over the years. I've invested, I've been an angel investor and VC. So I've seen a lot of these deals happen also as a lawyer. So I've kind of had the 360 view being on multiple sides of the, not the same deal, but different deals. And and so I kind of summarized that and I go kind of take the entrepreneur sort of step by step, starting with the mindset, starting with making the case why it is important for you to think about your exit strategy. And the sooner you start, actually, the better the outcome would be. The, the problem is that most entrepreneurs have spent less than four hours on their exit strategy, if they have at all, 40% do have not spent any time at all. And, and so that's a big problem. And then when you juxtapose that with the fact that 
of 30 of every IP, for every IPO there are 30 acquisitions. Yes. The most likelihood out, most likelihood the most likely successful outcome for any yes. entrepreneur is a sale to an acquirer. Yes. IPO is a pipe dream. Most startups fail anyway. Right. <laughs> One out of 30 do an IPO, the other sell to an acquirer. So when you juxtapose that with the time people spend on pursuing an IPO, it's completely out of whack. And so that's what I'm trying to correct. So in the first part of the book, I talk about this, this dilemma and, and, and how the results can be very different. And then I kind of walk the reader through how do you create your exit strategy? What are the things you should consider? What's the long game, which is you know playing a multi-year game here? Yes. And what's the short game, which when you're you're about to sell your startup, you're thinking about selling your startup within the next 12 months, there are very concrete steps you can take. And throughout this whole process, you want to increase your leverage as an entrepreneur. You want to basically create optionality and get the best possible outcome. And that's not just necessarily financial outcome. Sure. You know, To me, the best outcome is one that brings your startup closest to the executing on its original mission. You know, we all start startups with a big dream. And, and a lot of times, the realization of that dream necessitates partnering up with a, with a bigger company, with more resources, with more funding to actually take that and bring your startup to the next level. So those are the best strategic outcomes. Love it. So... Let me just, there's a few different directions I want to go. Let me see where I want to go first because there's so much in here. Let's, let's, let's actually talk about the, that strategic alliance phase, strategic partnership phase prior to when maybe one of those becomes an acquirer. So what do some of those things look like? And then also, you know, sometimes you hear hesitation from some entrepreneurs, right, to do anything with bigger companies, right? Oh, they're going to find out what I'm doing. They're going to steal my technology. They're going to, you know, all of this going on, right? So talk a little bit about that and, and, you know, how you, how you address those, how much of that is real. And, and then also, you know, what some of these deals look like that, that, that create these relationships that may lead to you being, you know, having a, a natural buyer. Right. Yes. No, I, I can tell you so many stories about that latter point on the hesitations, especially as a, as a first time entrepreneur with my first time, I was really protective of our IP. In fact, Google, who could have been a major fantastic acquirer for us, ended up acquiring another company that, again, with inferior technology and became Google Voice. That's yeah. that's what Google Voice is today. That was just a, just a competitor of ours, Grand Central, who started the same year. But they talked to us first, actually, because I had a very good friend there who made an introduction to the right team. And I, I threw buckets of cold ice, cold water on their heads when they started this conversation. And you know how I did that? <laughs> You'd love this. By negotiating ad nauseum their NDA, their standard NDA. So they sent an NDA. It had a residuals clause. It had all those things that big companies put in there. And I went to town with that. And we spent three months negotiating this freaking NDA and just lost the entire momentum. They decided to go with somebody else because we were quibbling over an NDA. Yeah. So we basically lost the house because of our fear <laughs> that Google would go and steal our technology. The reality is, I mean, there are some concerns and you can, you can have good lawyers advise you to write the... But being overly concerned about 
these kind of things, basically means that you're you're putting yourself out of the game. Yeah. So the risk you don't take is kind of like the the game you lose. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean the reality is that a lot of these big companies don't have resources to go and do what you do. They uh, they much rather acquire you than go have to hire a whole new team to try to figure out what you did and recreate what you built over the past X number of years. It's just time to market, as you said, it's really critical for them. If, if it's something strategic for them, they would want to move on it fast. So also you don't enter a relation. Again, this is where the relationship first approach comes in. You don't enter a relationship by being suspicious of the other person, right? By just signaling that you don't trust them to be honorable uh, <laughs> uh, counterparts you're already starting on a very wrong foot. So uh, it's it's a fine dance. And I actually now err on the being more uh, open. I'm not advising anyone to do that. Uh, I don't want people to come back and tell me, oh, you know, they stole my technology. What did you... But I, I have found, at least in my history, that being more open, being more uh, transparent, breeds more transparency as well. You know, how you approach people, it tends to be how they approach you and reciprocate. So to make a long story short, I, I would be a little bit less uh, suspicious of bigger companies. Now, you, you don't have to reveal everything on the, <laughs> on the first meeting. You could start small. You could start by just sharing some limited data about what you're seeing in the market and inquiring about them and, and see, okay, is, is this a give and take situation and that it, both parties are sharing or is it just you sharing and the other party is being silent and, and listening, which, which is different. But, you know, yeah, your first question was, how do you start these strategic partnerships? It could just be, look, uh, we are in this, we are in this industry. We see, I see a lot of commonalities in what we are doing. Perhaps we can share some, some information and see if there is any, potential for us to collaborate down the road. It doesn't have to be anything super serious and like, oh, I'm, I'm selling my company. Would you guys be interested? I would say leave that to be something that they actually come to you and they approach yes. you. But you, there is a fine dance to this that you can, you can signal your interest gradually over time and let them be the ones that that express excitement versus the other way around. And, and I actually, these are the, some of the things that I really go into detail in my book and, and teach entrepreneurs. I, lo I love that. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I've seen it on all ends of the spectrum when we talk about, you know, relationship. And then we start talking about things like strategic partnerships, strategic alliances, you know, some folks really, all they're doing is just establishing a relationship and keeping the, you know, the, the right person at the bigger company informed about what's going on with them. And it's very informal, Right. And, you know, it's lunch once in a while or just send them updates. And then in other cases, there are actually like a real strategic alliance kind of deal that's done where, they, where there's some work they're actually doing together as separate companies, right? That, that, that leads to a deal as well. You want to talk about that spectrum of ways yes. to interact? Yeah. And I think if you do have a very concrete thesis as to how your companies can collaborate uh, on a product level, on a marketing level, then definitely, or maybe data sharing. Uh, and then you should propose that and check and see whether that's something that the other side kind of resonates with. At the very least, it should be just keeping them on a mailing list that you're kind of sending them updates about your progress every quarter, every month, uh, depending on your cadence. Sometimes a lot of these potential strategic partners may not have a 
immediate partnership in mind, but they may be interested in investing in your startup. In fact, this past year, I would say strategic investors were a lot more active than uh, venture investors, financial investors. And I continue to see that there is a lot of strategic investor activity right now in the market. At my company, Serve Robotics, I would say we have more strategic investors than we have financial investors. So, and we are a robotics company. So you can, you can definitely go out there with a whole spectrum of options when you approach a strategic partner. And then I, I do think in these meetings, there should be a lot of listening. Kind of really understanding what your counterparts' pain points are. What are their strategic initiatives? Don't go in there assuming you know a lot about another company. You know, I've had this, and I actually provide an example in the book as well, where this entrepreneur came to me when I was at GoDaddy, and he thought he had it all figured out and was trying to teach me how to run this part of the business at GoDaddy. And I was like... It just was so off-putting because he didn't even bother asking us first, hey, why are you guys doing these things these ways? Yes, And this is my suggestion. Before he even found out, perhaps we had a reason, perhaps we had run tests to go in a certain direction. He just assumed he had figured it out and was imparting his wisdom. So I would say in, in those meetings, be, be hum- have intellectual humility, right? And and let, let the, the counterparts also reveal what could be areas where you could really collaborate with them. So, yeah, love it. You talk, You talked about, you know, the bigger companies sometimes being an investor in the smaller companies. And one of the things that maybe folks who, some of our listeners who are less experienced with deals in this area uh, may not know is that many of these companies actually have vent- venture funds, you know, and divisions set up specifically for that purpose to make investments in entrepreneurial companies with the with the intention of potentially you know buying them at some point and and you know and supporting them uh, along with the development because they realize that many times these entrepreneurial companies are more uh, innovative and creative and agile than 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 trying to do it themselves right absolutely intel is a great example of that you know where they have a very, very one of the most active investors out there right intel capital and you know part, part of their thesis is that actually they want to support the ecosystem of folks who would use their the stuff that they build, like their chips and all that. So sometimes they are investing because they want to uh, acquire in the future. Sometimes they're investing because they want to learn about a space, um, be more smart about it. Uh, Sometimes they're investing because they want to kind of joint development relationship. There's all sorts of areas. And and you won't know necessarily, even those that don't have a formal venture firm or venture arm like Intel, would actually sometimes invest out of their corporate development team does investments. They may not be super active, but it may make sense. So kind of, you got to go out there, build these relationships and inquire because there could be a lot of opportunities, again, that you're not tapping into as an entrepreneur. Uh, it would just be a matter of a couple of meetings to, to discover them. That's great. All right. So I, I, I want to leave a couple of minutes for you to talk about the robotics company because I'm interested in that. But before we go there, anything else about the book that you want you know, folks to know? And, you know, obviously, and, and also what made it, motivated you to write it? I mean, obviously you, you, you establish, you know, you have all this knowledge and experience you've gained and, and people ask me the same question, you know, why I negotiate every day. Why'd you write a negotiating <laughs> book? Right. And I have my answer for that, but I'm curious as to, you know, what motivated you? And then if there's anything else you want to say about the book. 
Well, I, I felt that you know throughout my career, I've had so many great mentors. I've I've been so privileged to work with so many wonderful entrepreneurs that I felt that I I, I should kind of write these down somewhere. I could have done a series of blog posts, but I didn't think that they would get uh, the kind of it wouldn't, it wouldn't all be there. And it wouldn't probably get to as many people as a book would. So yeah. this was at least my thinking. Um, I was lucky to have a book agent and a great publisher in Micro Hill, great editor. So they all helped shape this book to be what it is today. Then it got endorsed by Adam Grant and many other of my favorite authors like Scott Belsky. So the journey of writing a book has been fantastic. And, and I would say the most important part, gratifying of right, uh, thing about writing a book, the process was that I became a student of my own art. Yes. And I, you, you may have even noticed it when you, you were doing it, that I actually learned a lot more about what I was doing. And I became a lot more of a conscious participant in what I was doing day to day. I kind of step out and say, okay, well, how did this <laughs> conversation negotiation go? What did I do right? What did the other part do right? What could have gone better, right? So, so th th that's part of it. And then the other part was, I truly am a cheerleader for entrepreneurs. I want more entrepreneurs to succeed. Yes. It pains me when someone calls me and says, hey, I would love some help selling my startup, but I have only three months of runway. And have you talked to any strategic partner? Have you built? And they, they haven't done any. And, and that just really pains me because that's value lost to the society as a whole. So I, I kind of wrote the book that I wish I had when I did my first startup. So that that that's kind of like a convoluted answer to your question. But there are many reasons. Um, uh, but I'm so happy I did it. No, I mean you, your point about the writing process is really right on at least my experience you know it's funny i the whole the fundamental i i wrote i wrote a first draft of my book and it was you know I, oh this is good the story's great whatever but there was something missing like and i couldn't like i just couldn't there was something missing and i actually had the unfortunately for a for a tough reason but my dad passed away while i was writing the book mm -hmm. and i literally laid it down for six months you know while mm -hmm. i was just and then i came back to it and when i came back you know in a way for the book that was a benefit because i i was able to step away from it and then when i came back from and I realized that there was a fundamental framework that underlied everything I had been doing in negotiating, but it was unconscious, right? And so my whole, you know, the, you know, my book is authentic negotiating, clarity, detachment, and equilibrium, CDE. That fundamental framework, it, it's not like it didn't exist. I was using it. I just didn't have it distinguished because I never had wow. to distinguish it because I wasn't training people on it. I wasn't writing about it. It was just something I was doing. And I'm always fascinated by this conversation. People have heard me use the phrase of unconscious competence, right? A lot of the people have mastery in whatever they're doing. They, they can't necessarily teach other people how to do it because they don't know what they do, yes. right? Bob Proctor yes. is one of my mentors who's passed away recently. He used to talk about that all the time, right? Unconscious competence. So I was unconscious about that fundamental framework and the way I did stuff. I used it, but it wasn't there. And in order, you know, the only way that really came out of was say, saying that there's something missing you know, in, in the book. And then when I, when I rewrote the book to, with that framework, it, it changed everything. And it made me realize that I do have a framework that I use. Right. I didn't realize that previously. That yeah. is amazing. That's such a great story. And yeah, I have had moments like that throughout as well. So that's, that's really interesting to hear. I love it. All right. I want to, before I ask you my final two questions, I want to close with what you're up to, to now, because, you know, you've got the book and, you know, are, are you still working with entrepreneurs to help them you know, do this stuff. I know you have the robotics company as well. So yes. talk about everything that you're you're doing currently. 
Yes, well, so the robotics company, I'm president and CEO, chief operating officer of Serve Robotics. We are autonomous sidewalk delivery robot uh, that does deliveries right now for Uber Eats and 7-Eleven and other partners in LA area. Um, and so super exciting. It's a project that started inside Postmates by a very good friend of mine, Ali Kashani. He has a very interesting TED Talk as well. I highly recommend your uh, audience to, to check it out if they're interested in robotics and the future of, of our cities with robots. And, you know, when Uber, Postmates got acquired by Uber, Ali and I were talking and we were saying, look, th- there's a lot of potential here for this to be an independent company. Mm. In fact, Ali had that in mind before even Postmates was acquired by Uber. So he went to the management team and they agreed that the potential for this technology was a lot more than Uber itself could capitalize on within its own four walls. So we spun it out. So I helped him spin it out two years ago and Serve became an independent venture back company at that point. And that's when I joined. So I've been there for, for two years now. And, you know, we are just plugging along. So that's Serve Robotics. And you can check out even the robots and videos uh, on our website, uh, serverobotics.com. Now, once the book got launched this past fall, I also came out with the audiobook in November. I've been getting a lot of inbound interest from entrepreneurs who would like me to kind of do some coaching or advisory work with them. So I, on select occasions, I do I do also work with entrepreneurs to help them through the both exit strategy creation and then exit strategy execution, kind of figuring out how they build that best options of and execute on them for their startup. Great, great. Listen, I you know I love. I mean, you it's. There aren't that many people who, I mean, a lot of us have a lot of deal experience in various ways, but all the different angles you've, you've come <laughs> at it from are really fascinating. So I know that, you know, I know the book is great. I actually, I actually bought it and started, you know, and, and started it. I Thank haven't you. finished it yet, but so, and so far it's been, it, you know, it's been great. And I, I love the stories and the perspective, you know, that you bring to it and yeah, definitely, definitely check out the, 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 the robotics. I mean, this is an area that I'm just generally interested in as well. And we were talking in our pre-call and I've seen the ones that are in that are in various places that are you know that that, that are going along the street, and it's like it's 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 the coolest thing in the world. It's like yes. it's wild, wild. Yes. All right. So you gave the uh, that website. Where, where else can they find the book or any other contact information? Oh, uh, oh, the, oh, yeah. The book is on Amazon and Audible for for the audio version, as well as anywhere else that you kind of purchase your local bookstore. If they don't carry it, ask them to carry it. But I have its own website, exitpath.net. I couldn't get the .com even. And I was at GoDaddy. <laughs> Those are hard to come by. So exitpath.net it has more information about me, how to contact me, as well as uh, information about the book. Also, I'm on LinkedIn and other social platforms like Instagram and Twitter. Perfect. Taraj, my last question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from all people from oppression around the world to the reason I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in decades. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Oh, absolutely. You know, freedom, I think, is the ability to pursue your dream for me. And that's why my family actually left Iran when I was 10 years old, because we didn't have the freedom to to be to be who we wanted to be, right? And I think as an entrepreneur, it's you have great freedom to create the future. And I think that's why I kind of cherish being an entrepreneur and working with entrepreneurs, because we are building the future. Love it. Love it. Taraj Parang, thank you so much for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Corey, I, I loved our conversation. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.